Well, good morning, church family. Good morning, good morning. How you doing this morning? Whether you're here in Theater One or watching this online, a huge uh, welcome to you. My name is Chris, one of the leaders here. Have the joy and privilege of teaching and preaching uh, the Bible. And uh, this morning, before we jump in, we're going to get right to work. But before we jump in, I got to warn you, uh, we got a heavy text. We're in a series of heavy texts. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, but this morning is a heavy one. So uh, if this is your first Sunday with us or you're watching online for the first time, I'm sorry. Uh, don't write the mail. I just deliver it. But uh, this sermon, uh, this text rather, reminds me of a quote uh, that I heard a long time ago that I think is pretty, pretty important for a morning like this morning. It goes like this. Hard words produce soft people. Soft words produce hard people. Hard words produce soft people. Soft words produce hard people. Uh, What do I mean by that? I mean hard words are good for us. We don't like them. Nobody likes a hard word. Uh, But they are actually good for us in that what they do is they soften our hearts. The Spirit uses hard words to soften our hearts to be open to the gospel. But if all we ever hear are soft words... Tender words, loving words, you're a snowflake, one of a kind, you can do anything, be anywhere, shoot for the stars, go over the rainbow. Then when life smacks you in the face, which it inevitably will if you've been alive for more than four seconds, you don't know how to handle it. You don't know how to deal with it because you haven't been toughened up. Well, this morning you're going to get toughened up, right? Here we go. If you have a Bible, grab it, open it up to where are we going this morning? Matthew, that's right. We've been here for 10 years. We've got a few more to go. Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to get right to work. We're going to jump right in. Matthew chapter 19, picking up in verse uh, picking up in verse 16. Here is what Matthew records. Just then, a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So let me just set this up. Jesus has been teaching. Uh, he's been telling us what the kingdom is like. And this guy hears Jesus and he comes rushing towards him. And we're told, not much in Matthew's gospel about this man, but in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, he's referred to as the rich young ruler. In other words, he's, he's this wealthy religious guy. Not a, not a Pharisee, but a person in good standing within the religious community. Uh, he would be the equivalent, like in the West Village context, of like a community group leader or a, or a staff person. Like somebody who has a position and is significant. Uh, And so this guy is wealthy, he's religious, and he comes to Jesus and he asks a question. Look at the question, I'm going to read it again. Write down in verse 16, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What a great question. What a great question that this man is asking. This, in my opinion, is perhaps the most fundamental human question that any person could ever ask. Functionally, what this guy is asking Jesus is, how do I go to heaven after I die? What do I need to do to make sure that after I die, I go to heaven? I would contend that regardless of where you're at, wherever you're at on the spiritual spectrum, whatever your religious background is, whatever philosophical ideas you hold on to, in some way, shape, or form, you have at some point in your life asked this question. As long as humans have been around, this has been a question that people have been asking. What happens after I die? It's the right question to be asking. And this man comes to Jesus, and don't miss this. Don't miss what's happening here. Here we have a wealthy man. We have a religious man. And he recognizes that there's something that his money can't buy for him. 
There's something that no matter how much good he does, no matter how much religious obedience he has, no matter how much wealth he has accrued, there's one thing that he cannot purchase or earn in and of himself. I would argue that we're living in a moment where this question is more relevant than it has ever been. Uh, for many of us, we put our hope, we put our faith in, in things like political leaders. Well, that's not going so well right now, is it? The economy, well, that's not going so well right now, is it? In our health, well, that's not going so well right now, is it? And all the things that humans for so long have put their hope and trust in are slowly being peeled away. They're slowly being stripped back, and we're left to ask the question, well, what else can we put our hope and trust in? And so the question that this man is asking Jesus is perhaps the most fundamental human question that could ever be asked. Look at Jesus' response to him. Look at what he says, verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replies. A little bit of an abrasive question, right? It seems on the surface, at least, that this man's coming to Jesus to ask a question that he wants an answer to. And Jesus, as he often does, answers a question with a question. He almost never gives a direct answer to someone, especially a religious person who's seeking, uh, who's asking a question of him. And there's a reason for this. Jesus isn't just, you know, he isn't just choosing to be difficult, but what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's, he's questioning the motivation of this man. You see, Jesus is able to look into the heart of this man and see what his true motivations are. Now think about this with me for a second. We're given this picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation that he has these, these eyes of, that, that pierce into the human heart. Jesus looks at this man who's come to him and he can actually see his motivation. He understands what, Jesus, what he's actually asking of Jesus. He, and he does the same thing with us. He can actually pierce right into our heart and see the motivation for why we do what we do, why we say what we say, why we live the way we live. We cannot fool him. We, we cannot trick Jesus. And then Jesus does what he so often does and has done so many times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He completely blows up our categories. We have these ideas of the way the world is supposed to work. We have these ideas of the way God is supposed to work and, and the way our lives are supposed to work. And then Jesus comes in and he just drops a bomb and completely blows everything up. Look at what he says Second half of verse 17, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, if you want to enter eternal life, Jesus is talking about, then keep the commandments. Verse 18, which ones, the man inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this man comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I want to inherit eternal life. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus comes back to him. And look at what he says. Notice this. Second half of verse uh, 17. If you're a Bible underliner, this is a great, a great phrase to underline. There is only one who is good. So often when you and I think of goodness, when we think of morality or religious obedience, we kind of view it on this continuum or on this scale, right? Like way over here, somewhere way over here, there's really, really bad. And somewhere way, way, way over here, there is really, really good. And if we were to be honest, 
not honest, honest, but kind of honest. And we had to rate ourselves and put ourselves somewhere on the spectrum or somewhere on the continuum. Most of us would probably put ourselves somewhere on this side, somewhere on the I'm a pretty good person side. Now, we're going to see in just a second that this guy actually puts himself way over here. Like he thinks, uh, this man that comes to Jesus, he thinks he's really, really, really good. Now, most of us probably are going to be a little bit more self-deprecating than that. We're going to say, well, I'm not bad, but I'm not really, really good. I'm, I'm somewhere over here. Full disclosure, I've never, I, that I can think of, in my entire life had somebody come up to me and tell me that they're a bad person, which should be a bit of a warning to all of us, right? And so we have this idea, this idea of a, of a goodness or religious or morality continuum, where we're, we're kind of moving along this continuum and we're doing more and more good and we're earning more and more brownie points. And, and the idea of the life that we're supposed to live is to just kind of shift along this continuum. We want to continue to move away from really, really bad towards really, really good. And we want to get closer and closer to really, really good. Now, let me just hit pause here for a second and say something that probably needs to be said. I'm not saying we shouldn't be trying to do good things and be a good person. That is not at all what I'm trying to say. But what I want you to see here is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is completely blowing up the categories. And, and we have these categories of really bad and really good. And what does Jesus come in and say? Well, actually, there's only one who is really good. See, Jesus' categories aren't really good and really bad. Jesus' categories are sinless, sinful rather, and sinless. You are either sinful or you are sinless, and there's nothing in between. In other words, what Jesus is saying in effect is there's, there's nothing you can do to move yourself along a continuum that's going to get you to heaven. There is no continuum that is long enough, large enough, uh, that goes far enough that is going to get you to heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is there's nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. You, there's nothing you can do to, to get yourself into heaven. You are either sinful or you are sinless. See, this guy's coming to Jesus, and, and really, if I could kind of retell the story, it would be something like this. This man comes up to Jesus and he puts his arm around him. This rich, young, wealthy, good-looking dude shows up to the gathering every Sunday, shows up, doesn't cancel at the last minute, right? He's not one of those people. He shows up, not calling anyone out, wasting spots. We only got 50. Never mind. I'm just going, joking. Sorry. In, inside. Uh, uh, take that back. Okay. He, he's a good dude. And so he comes up to Jesus and he puts his arm around him. He's like, Jesus, you know I'm good. I know I'm good. Here's, here, I'm going to ask you a question, but I don't really want you to answer the question. How do I get into heaven? And really, Jesus, what I'm, what I'm wanting you to say is, well, I'm, you're already there. You're good. You're good. Like, you're on the list. I checked. You're in. Reservation for one. Welcome. And Jesus is like, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. What Jesus is saying, and this is crazy, it's crazy. You're either sinful or you're sinless. And the way into heaven, don't miss what he is saying, is to be perfect. You aren't good unless you're perfect. Perfection is the standard. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, you, again, you might be on a spiritual journey. You might be new. Uh, you might have your own ideas of how God works and the way the world works and, 
and religious philosophies. I get that. I get we're not all on the same page here, but just think about this with me for a second. What are we talking about? What is the question that this man asked? How do I get to heaven? What must I do to, to get eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? We're talking about heaven. We're not talking about, you know, what standard you need to attain to to like run a daycare or to be a police officer. We're talking about heaven, the throne room of God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says perfection, and some of us push back on that. And the reason we push back on that is because we're like the rich young ruler. We actually think we're good. And what Jesus is trying to expose in this man and what he's trying to expose in us is that we're not perfect. We don't deserve heaven. Perfection is the standard. That's what Jesus says. And look at what happens next. This is great. So Jesus lists out all these commands. And look at what the guy says, verse... 20, all these I have kept. In other words, he doubles down on his position. See what Jesus quotes in the list of commandments, if if you're familiar with the Bible, he quotes out of the Ten Commandments, and this is a bit of a broad way of Jesus saying you basically have to keep all the commandments that God has ever spoken, and, and this man says, I've done it. I've kept all the commandments. So he doubles down on his position, and then look at what he asks next. Now, I don't know his motivation for asking this question, but this is the question to, to ask right here, right? This is, this is a good question that he asks next. Look at what he says. He says, well, what do I still lack? That's a question that all of us should be asking. What do I still need? What, what's lacking in my life? And then look at Jesus' answer, and this is where it starts to get very, very difficult Verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be what? What's the word? Perfect. If you want to be perfect, because that's the standard. Now, this is a head scratcher, what Jesus says next, okay? If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me. So Jesus says the standard is perfect. This guy's like, well, okay, I thought I was perfect. Maybe I'm not fully perfect. What's the little thing I need to add to my already awesome life to make it perfect? How do I get to the next step on the goodness continuum so I can earn my way into heaven? And Jesus says, oh, it's really simple. Well, if you want to be perfect, here's what you got to do. You just got to go sell all your possessions, everything you have, give it away to the poor. Then you have treasure in heaven, and then you can come follow me. What? What is Jesus saying? Right? Is Jesus saying, in order to be a follower of mine, in order to be a Christian, you have to, uh, you know, you have to give away everything. Otherwise, you can't be a Christian. Well, I don't think so. Is he saying it's impossible for a wealthy person to be a follower of his? I, I don't think so. Is, is he saying that you know, in order to actually be a follower of Jesus, you have to be some homeless uh, vagabond who, who has no property, no possessions whatsoever? I don't think so. There's many times in the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus where wealthy people come to Jesus, they give their lives to Jesus, and he doesn't require that they sell all their property and possessions. So we got to ask a different question then. The question is, what is Jesus saying? 
what's he talking about? What does this even mean? I want, I want to go to heaven when I die, so I want to be perfect. So how do I achieve perfection? And what does selling everything have to do with perfection? Well, this is a really, really, really important thing to understand. Jesus is having a conversation with a particular man about a particular issue. And here's, don't forget what I said, Jesus knows his heart. And so you and I are going to have the privilege of looking at Jesus having a very, very difficult conversation with a man. And it would be foolish of us in this moment to not ask the question, where do I sit in this conversation? Uh, There's a man by the name of Martin Luther, not the civil rights leader, but the Protestant reformer who uh, commented on the Ten Commandments. And again, Jesus quoted out of the Ten Commandments just a couple of verses earlier when he gave all these commandments for this man to obey, which he said he obeyed. And Martin Luther had this great line about the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments come out of the book of Exodus chapter 20. Uh, and the first of the Ten Commandments is that you shall have no other gods before me. And Martin Luther, when he looked at the Ten Commandments, he, he came up with this concept, this idea uh, kind of summarize the Ten Commandments by saying this. He said, there's really two commandments and then application and obedience to the rest. In other words, if you obey the first two commandments, the first two commandments being that there is actually only one God and that you are to worship that God above all other gods, if you obey those two commandments, then the natural outflow of your life will be that you will obey the rest. You will obey the rest because your desire will be to worship God above all other things and your desire will be to please him. And so pleasing him will result in living in obedience to him. And so what Jesus is doing here, and this is very, very significant. This is what Martin Luther is getting at. And this is what Jesus wants this man to see. And I think it's what he wants us to see. Is that when God has the place of primacy in our life, then the natural outflow of that primacy is that we live in full obedience to him. In other words, to use Jesus' language from Matthew 19, when God has the place of primacy in our lives, we have the ability, okay, follow me here, to achieve perfection. But the inverse is also true. Wherever there's a place or space in our life where we don't have full obedience, where we don't have full alignment, it's because we don't fully worship God. In other words, God doesn't have the place of primacy in our lives. In other words, we're disobeying the first two commandments. So what is Jesus doing here with this man? What's the point of all this? He's calling his bluff. He's calling the bluff of this man. You see, this guy comes to Jesus. He says, I'm good. I've kept all the commandments. I deserve to go to heaven. I'm perfect. I'm perfect. And Jesus says, well, then if you're perfect, that means your worship of God is perfect. And if your worship of God is perfect, that means you have no other God except for me, so prove it, sell all your stuff. If you sell all your stuff, that demonstrates to me that you don't worship your stuff. And don't miss what Jesus says in verse 21, right? Verse 21, he says this, you will have treasure in heaven. 
In other words, sure, you're going to lose all your stuff, you're going to lose your house, you're going to lose your money, you're going to lose your retirement fund, but you're going to get me. See, Jesus is posing a question to this man. Saying, do you love me or do you love your money? Do you love me or do you love your stuff? And look at the man's response, verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away, what's the word? Sad. He went away sad. Why? Why was he sad? He was standing in front of Jesus. He could have had Jesus. Jesus was inviting him to come to him. Why was he sad? Because he had great wealth. He was sad because he had great wealth. This man looked at Jesus. He was literally sitting at the feet of Jesus, looking Jesus in the eye. And he looked at his money. And he looked at Jesus. And he looked at his stuff. And he looked at Jesus. And he looked at all that he had. And he said, I can't give this up. I need this. I can live without you, Jesus, but I can't live without this. And he walked away. <laughs> the thought of losing all of his money it was too costly for him. And in effect, Jesus exposes this man's heart. He exposes his true motivation. He exposed what the man really loved. Interesting, Matthew chooses a very particular word in verse 22. It's the word sad. We talked about this already. Good word to underline to describe the way this man felt. Interesting question to ask is, well, if he was sad, why didn't he just go back? I mean, Jesus is loving, gracious, kind. He's going to take him at any point, right? He's not going to turn him away. If he's, oh, I had a second thought. I want to come back. Jesus said, okay, come on back. It's all good. I'm going to sell everything. Why did he go away? If he was sad, why did he go away? Why didn't he come back? Why didn't he come back and sit at the feet of Jesus? Well, it's interesting to note here that the word that Matthew uses to describe this emotional disposition that this man had is the same word that he's going to use later in his gospel to describe Jesus' emotional disposition when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he is about to go to the cross. You see, the night before he is about to go to the cross, he's in the garden, and there's this scene where Jesus, God the Son, is praying to his heavenly Father, and he prays, Father, take this cup away from me. In other words, Jesus knows what he's about to endure in going to the cross, and he's praying to his heavenly father saying, like, if there's any other way for us to accomplish what we need to accomplish rather than me go to the cross, let's make that happen. And then Jesus says, but if not, my will, your will be done. And there's this scene where Jesus is praying. He, he's praying because he has, or he, he's praying and as he's praying, he has this, this intense mental anguish. To, to the degree that he literally sweats droplets of blood. 
What's the anguish over? The anguish is not just the physical death Jesus is about to experience. He is indeed going to experience physical and emotional harm. But there is a spiritual death that Jesus is about to experience. When he goes to the cross, you'll remember there is a scene when Jesus goes to the cross where he cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a moment when Jesus is on the cross, when, when he is bearing our sin. The Apostle Paul uses this language to describe what happens in the moment that Jesus goes to the cross. He says that Jesus became our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus becomes our sin. And in that moment, Jesus was all the sin of all the world of all time placed on him. And, and the Father could not look at the Son. And he turned his face away from from the Son. And Father and Son who have experienced perfect unity since the, the very beginning of time for all of eternity, in that moment, it was separated. Jesus was experiencing in the moment on the cross the ultimate loss, the ultimate dislocation, the ultimate separation from God. Now, don't miss what Matthew is saying here when he uses this word sad to describe this man's disposition. What Jesus is exposing in this man is that for him to walk away from his wealth meant the same thing. In the simplest of terms, his money, his wealth, it had become more than just money and wealth and zeros on a page. It had become his God. He was sad in the same way that Jesus was sad because he did not want to experience the ultimate separation from the thing that he worshipped more than anything else. It was his source of joy it was his source of identity. It was his comfort. It was his everything. His everything. And he could not walk away from it. And the question that Jesus wants us to ask of ourselves is do we worship him? Or do we worship our stuff? Do we worship him or do we worship our money? Does Jesus have the place of primacy in our lives? Do we really love him? Do we really love him? And then look at what he says next. Verse 22. Sorry, verse 23. When Jesus, then Jesus rather, said to his disciples, so the man goes away, now Jesus and his disciples have a bit of an insider conversation about what just took place. And hear Jesus' words here, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gives us a sober warning. 
to those of us who are wealthy, to those of us who are religious, to those of us who are wealthy and religious, Jesus gives us a sober warning. He says it is hard. It is hard for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Bible does not have great things to say to those of us who are wealthy and religious. Now, I don't know anything about sowing, but I'm pretty sure it's impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. And yet Jesus says, that's what it's going to be like for those of us who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, it's a good thing I'm not rich. <laughs> Whew! Glad he's not talking to me. I've been doing this gig, this pastor thing for 20-ish years now. That's a long time. And I will say, in 20 years, I've had people come and confess the craziest stuff to me. Craziest stuff. Stuff they would never tell anyone, not even their therapist. They will tell me. But in 20 years, I have never, not one time, have I ever had a person come to me and say, I struggle with greed. Not once. Not once has a person come to me and say, said, I have wealth and I know I worship my money and I don't know what to do with it. If that isn't a sober warning for us, I don't know what is. But the reality is we are the wealthiest people who have ever lived in all of human history. I mean, this guy, we are told by Matthew that this guy's rich. So we objectively know that by, you know, first century standards, this guy's wealthy. If this guy were to walk into your house, he would think, holy smokes, you're rich. He'd walk into the house. You would take him into the kitchen. He'd point and say, what is that? You're like, that's, this, that's called the sink. What does the sink do? Well, you turn the tap and water comes out of it. What? You don't have to walk for miles and fetch water and carry it on a bucket? No, not at all. Not at all. It just comes right to the house, just like this. It's amazing. Turn it on. Turn it off. Water comes. Water stops. Woohoo! Walk him into another room. What's that? That's called a toilet. Well, what do you do on that? That's where you do toilet things. You do that right in your house? Isn't that kind of disgusting? Like it just sits there? No, no, no. You push this button and it goes down and it goes out these pipes outside. Where does it go? I have no idea. It just doesn't stay here. Oh, that's amazing. You take them into the living room. You sit them down on the couch. Oh, you have a couch. That's amazing. And you turn on the television. He's like, oh, your paintings talk. That's so cool. And then you go, yeah, you can just change them by pushing this button. Are you hungry? We have this big thing in the, in the kitchen called the fridge. It's a cold box that you just put your food in. Do you want a pizza? You just pull out your phone, push some buttons, and a high school kid will deliver it right to your house. You don't even have to leave. It's amazing. It's amazing. So good. We're rich. You're rich. I'm rich. We're the wealthiest people who have ever lived in all of human history. And on the, on the extreme you know, end of the spectrum, if there's a slight chance that you are not rich, it doesn't mean you don't worship money. You could be dirt poor and still worship money. You can be dirt poor and still think, why don't I have what they have? You can be dirt poor and still be envious and jealous and consumed by what you don't have instead of content with what Jesus has given you. So don't miss what Jesus is saying here. It's hard. 
it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that you should sell everything because the less you have, the closer you are to God. It's not what he's saying. Jesus is asking a much bigger question than that. Is money your God? Is money your God? I want to give us three questions that we can ask of ourselves as a tool of assessment to discern whether we are worshipers of money or worshipers of Jesus. The first one is this. Do you believe that money and things will bring you joy? Uh, Do you believe that money and things will bring you joy? For many of us, there is great joy in purchasing things, right? It's an exciting, exhilarating experience to go buy something new. I love to buy books. I mean, we regularly, the Amazon ferry delivers to our house, right? And I love it. The kid's like, oh, package for dad. Did you get anything cool? No, just another book. Okay. But I love it. But some of us love to buy things. It gives us this sense of satisfaction. But there's also this reality whereby so many of us buy things we don't need with money that we don't have because we're looking for things, we're looking for wealth, we're looking for something to satisfy our hearts. See, some of you think you have a spending issue, but it's not really a spending issue, it's actually a worship issue. It's not a spending issue, it's a Jesus, you're not enough to satisfy the deepest longings of my heart, so I need something else to fill in the gaps and the void issue. And when you realize that Jesus is all you need, suddenly it takes away the desire or the need that you have to buy things or to have things to satisfy you. But yet there are people who are hearing this who will go into debt to go on a vacation. They will remortgage their house to renovate or to buy a car. Why? Because I need this. I need it. Do you look to money? Do you look to things? as a source of joy, to bring you joy. Second question is this, are you generous with your money? Now again, before you answer, okay, before you answer, 20 years, okay, remember this, 20 years, and in 20 years, not one person has come to me to confess they struggle with greed, not one. So, so before you answer, you should probably just, like, just pause for a second. One of the things I've been saying to my kids a lot lately is you have to learn to tell yourself the truth about yourself. You got to learn to tell the truth about yourself to yourself, right? The prophet Jeremiah says the human heart is deceitful above all things. Just like the continuum, if I was just to say, who here thinks they're generous? We'd be like, oh yeah, I'm generous, I'm generous, you know, I'm a generous person. So instead of comparing yourself to that guy over there, don't do that. Ask the question. Use sober judgment, assess your heart, be ruthlessly honest with yourself. Are you generous? And there's a really, really easy way to tell. This doesn't have to be subjective. We can actually make this empirical. We can make this an objective test. It's very simple. How? Look. Pull out your bank statements. Pull out your credit card statements. Ask the question, 
What do I do with my money? What do I do with my stuff? It'll look you right in the face. Your answer will be right there. How much money do you give away? How much of your stuff do you give away? What percentage of your income do you give to the church? And this isn't a sermon that's designed to try and get you to give money to the church. We're doing just fine. But how much do you give to the church? How much do you give to the needs of others? It's very easy to tell if you're a generous person or not. It's very, very easy. When you actually look at the statistics on giving, specifically from Christians to the church, it's not great. Let's be honest with you. I'm sure it doesn't apply here, but just in case, the average follower of Jesus gives 3.1% of their income to their local church, 3.1%. Now, I want to be clear about something here. This isn't a wealth issue, because if you're actually to do a deep dive into those statistics, here's what you're going to see, that wealthy people, on average per capita, are less generous than less than wealthy people. So if you're a millionaire and you give $1,000, I mean, that's fantastic, okay? Super thankful for that. But you might be a thousandaire who gives $100. That's actually more generosity. And Jesus is wanting to know, what do you do with your money? I mean, he says many times, where your treasure is, there your heart is. You cannot serve, you cannot worship both God and money. Now, let me just be absolutely clear. I've already alluded to this, but I want to be so abundantly clear about what I'm not doing or saying right now, because some of you are going to hear what I'm not saying, and Satan's going to use this to to bring you to this place of guilt and shame. What I am not trying to do is make you feel guilty. I am not trying to spur you to go give more money to the church. It's not what this is about. But Jesus, time and time and time again through his ministry, draws straight lines from our money to our worship of him. And I care too much about your heart to not ask these questions. Jesus is asking, are you generous? Do you spend more on Starbucks than you do on the kingdom? Do you spend more on Netflix than you do on the kingdom? If you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, we, we did a little financial update. And again, I, I want to be clear about this. Church is doing fine. We've actually, in the history of our church, have never been financially healthier, okay? So I feel like I can say this with a fully clear conscience. There is no mixed motivation here. I just want you to understand that. You know, you might be new to church, like pastor guy talking about money, wherever, wherever. he's probably got a big house. And wherever. No, 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 not what's going on here. But a couple weeks ago, I stood up here and we talked about giving, and we talked about why, and I, I had this picture that I painted for us of like, what would happen if our church was so generous, and we are a generous church, don't hear me saying that we're not a generous church, but what if our church was so generous that, that it came, became less about paying the bills, you know, making sure that we had a balanced budget at the end of, the, of every month, and it became about like, oh my goodness, what if we had enough money in the bank that we could actually just hire a church planter and send them off to plant a church, or we could, we could fund and take care of single moms, or we could send out missionaries, or we could make disciples. Like, what if our church was so generous? We love Jesus so much, and because we realized that Jesus gave all of his life for us, we responded with rich generosity towards him, towards his mission, 
that we had so much money that we didn't know what to do with and so many people could meet Jesus. Because don't miss what Jesus says here, right? If you go back up, I believe it's in verse 21. He says, sell your property and possessions, but you will get treasure in heaven. That we would actually have treasure in heaven because we gave so much to Jesus' mission. We supported so many people we, we used our resources to make Jesus known in our city. Wouldn't that be amazing? So some questions. Do you spend more on your car than you do on the kingdom of Jesus? Do you spend more on your lawn maintenance than you do on the kingdom of Jesus? Do you spend more on your dog grooming than you do on the kingdom of Jesus? Do you spend more on the backsplash in your kitchen than you do on the kingdom and the mission of Jesus? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Third question. I warned you before we started. You could have left. Third question. perhaps the most direct, but what would you do if you were this man? You were this man in this story. You come to Jesus, you're excited. Jesus, I want to go to heaven when I die. What do I got to do when I, to go to heaven when I die? Jesus is like, oh, it's really simple. Sell the, sell the SUV, sell the $800,000 house, cash in the RSPs, cash out the pension, cash in the education fund, sell the income properties and give it to the poor. You get to go to heaven when you die. Heaven's a good thing, right? It's good. Well, kind of. It's hard. It's really hard. It's hard for me. When I hear this, it's hard for me. It's hard for you. The question is why? Why is it hard? C.S. Lewis, who's a great Christian thinker and writer, he wrote this great book called The Screwtape Letters, which I would commend to anyone who wants to read it. And it's uh, the premise of the book is that there are two demons who are tempting a Christian and they're writing letters back and forth, giving each other tips on how to tempt Christians away from following uh, Jesus. And he has this great line in there where he says this. He says, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels he is finding his place in it while it is really finding its place in him. A prosperity knits a man to the world. In other words, what Lewis is getting at is Satan's greatest tool to cause us to be apathetic towards Jesus and his mission is to make us wealthy. Why? Because we have too much to lose. If we're fat, comfortable, cozy, sitting on the couch, watching church on TV with our cup of coffee, or sitting in a big building, Cineplex building, just enjoying, this is great, blah, blah, blah. We have too much to lose. Sell everything, give money to church planting, to supporting single moms. To making decide, I wanted to go to Hawaii. I wanted to retire early. 
Jesus, his kingdom, church planting. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It's too hard. It's too hard. And just like this man looked at Jesus and then looked at all that he had and then he looked at Jesus and he looked at all that he had, if we're not careful, we'll go away sad. Jesus is asking, do you worship me? Do you worship me? And then he says this, or this happens, disciples turn to Jesus. Sorry. Yeah, the disciples, verse 25, turned to Jesus, and, and they were greatly astonished, it says, and they asked this, who then can be saved? I mean, that makes sense, right? That's a good question. If you're listening to this, you're probably going like, well, I don't know if I'm actually a Christian. It's a tough text. This is tough words that Jesus said. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, All things are impossible. In other words, the natural disposition of the heart is not going to be to love Jesus. It's not going to be to serve him. It's not going to be to give everything away. But if there's something in you that is longing to want to follow him and longing to want to obey him, but this is a hard teaching, you're not sure what to do with it. That's actually the work of the Spirit. What Jesus is talking about here is that it is the Spirit who comes in and saves people. It's the Spirit who comes in and changes people. That there's nothing you can actually do. That if you don't actually worship Jesus as God, even if you were to go out and sell everything and give it to the poor, but you didn't actually love Jesus, you wouldn't, you wouldn't inherit eternal life. The desire to sell everything and give it to the poor is the fruit of the reality that you actually love him. And then Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And they actually did. If you remember the disciples, they walked away from their nets. They walked away from their jobs. They walked away from their families, their homes, everything to follow Jesus. And then look at what Jesus answers them with. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What is Jesus saying? Peter says, what about us? We've sold everything. What do we get? Jesus says, you get me. You get me. Is that enough? Is that enough for us, church? Is that enough for you? Or do you need something else? Close with a story. There were these African farmers who uh, were having trouble with um, monkeys that were coming down from the jungle in the night and destroying their crops, utterly destroying their crops. They tried everything to keep these monkeys at bay, couldn't do it. So they hired a local farmer. And the local farmer came and consulted with the farmers and or the local hunter, sorry, came and consulted with the farmers and 
So here's what you gotta do, you gotta get some coconuts, and we're gonna, they drilled holes in the coconuts, hauled them out, put a peanut in the coconut, and then chained the coconut to a tree. The farmers are like, what is this guy doing? Is he cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? Like, how is this gonna work? So that's all you gotta do. They go to bed that night, wake up in the morning, every single coconut that they had hollowed out, put a peanut in, chained to a tree, had a monkey standing there with his hand inside the coconut. See, the hole was wide enough for the monkey to get his hand in, but then when he clenched his fist to grab the peanut inside the coconut, he couldn't pull it back out. He was stuck. I mean, all he had to do was let go. All the monkey had to do was let go, and he could get away, but he's holding on to this peanut. So the farmers are, like, amazed at this. Well, what are we going to do now? Hunter's like, oh, it's simple. Just kills them all. Dead. And you hear that story, and you think, those monkeys are so dumb. So dumb. You hear the story of this rich young ruler, you think, that guy is so dumb. And Jesus is saying, that's us. If we would just let go, we could have everything. But we're holding on so tightly. I'll close with Jesus' words in Matthew Matthew chapter 16, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this is a hard teaching. This is a hard word. You are asking us to soberly assess our hearts and to ask the question, do we love you? And so, Spirit, we know in and of ourselves this is impossible. All of us are feeling the weight of that right now. We're feeling the weight of we can't do this. And so, Spirit, I pray right now you would work in our lives to reveal to us the grace of Jesus, that we would see him as better we would see him in all his glory, in all his splendor. We would see his love and we would see his grace and we would see his kindness. That just as the author of Hebrews says, we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in so doing, all else around us would just pale in comparison to seeing you in all your glory and splendor. We would be willing to walk away from anything and everything to follow you. Produce that in us. Give us that longing, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen, amen. If you have your communion supplies, you can pull those out if you grab those on the way in. If not, that's okay. If you're at home watching at home, uh, you can hit pause and uh, go get some communion supplies. One of the things that we uh, do at West Village, uh, have always done from the very beginning, is we... We feel like um, when we teach and preach the Bible, we feel like it's ever so important that we always come back to Jesus because we think he is the hero of the story. It's not us who's the hero, it's him who's the hero. And we hear these words of Jesus and then we feel like there's got to be this like response. We've got to respond to what he says. Not enough to hear this, like you just walk out right now. It's like, oh, that's not great. Like, oh, it's heavy. We need 
a moment to process, to pray, to, to respond. And so we do that in a number of different ways. One of the ways that we have always called the church family to respond is through giving, and that's really appropriate this morning. And so Matt already went over this, but you can text your offering in, you can go back out into the lobby and give, uh, you can go on our website and give. And the reason we give is because we believe giving is an act of worship because Jesus literally says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And when you give, it's not like you're like, oh yeah, just paying you know, for my seat, like I'm going to the movies. It's like Jesus has given everything. And when I give, I'm contributing to the work that he's doing here to further his mission. Just as I met him, I want others to meet him. I want others to experience what I've been able to experience. And so we give as an act of worship. We're gonna sing in just a second. Nathan's going to come back on the screen and we're going to respond in singing, singing the grace of God. But we also respond in communion. And the reason we have it set up this way is because there are some weeks where we just need it. We need it. And this is one of those weeks where we need to be reminded of Jesus' love for us. And so communion is a picture of his broken body and it's a picture of his shed blood. All of this done for us, done in our place for our sins. And so if you're here this morning, you're like, I'm a failure. I haven't loved Jesus well. We get to come to the table. We get to be reminded that although there have been days where we have gone away sad like this man, we get to come back and he receives us. He receives us. And so I invite you to eat this. Jesus' body broken for you. I invite you to drink this, the shed blood of Jesus. All done in your place for your sins. And to literally receive right now in this moment the grace of God. The forgiveness of sin. And then just like Jesus said so many times, now go and sin no more. Go and seek to live in obedience to him. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and mercy. And as we take just a few moments to reflect on what you've done for us, as we sing to you, Spirit, would you make alive in our hearts the grace of Jesus, we pray.